Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm talking with Kate Kendall. Kate leads the National Center for Lesbian Rights, a national legal organization committed to advancing the civil and human rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgendered people and their families through litigation, public policy, advocacy, and public education. NCLR's legal policy and legislative victories set important precedents that improve the lives of all LGBT people and their families across the country. Projects and legal issues areas include asylum and immigration, elders, employment, family and relationships, federal legislation and policy, state legislation and policy, hate crimes, health care, housing, low income and poverty, prisons, rural communities, sports, transgender law and youth. Kate grew up Mormon in Utah and received her J.D. degree from the University of Utah College of Law in 1988. After a few years as a corporate attorney, she was named the first staff attorney for the American Civil Liberties Union of Utah. In this capacity, she oversaw the legal department of ACLU of Utah and directly litigated many high-profile cases focusing on all aspects of civil liberties, including reproductive rights, prisoners' rights, church-state conflicts, free speech, and the rights of LGBT people. In 1994, she accepted the position as legal director with the National Center for Lesbian Rights and made the move to San Francisco. Big move, I'm imagining. In 1996, Kate was named as NCLR's executive director. In that capacity, she assists in the development of litigation and strategy and is responsible for all aspects of agency operation. She's also responsible for executing a broad and forward-thinking vision around policy and project initiatives. She acts as the primary spokesperson on behalf of NCLR to the media. She's appeared in hundreds of media outlets, including the New York Times, Washington Post, BBC, NPR, Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, and dozens of online blogs. She's also visible and vibrant social media voice. Kate lives in San Francisco with her wife, Sandy, and they have two children, Julian, 20, and Ariana, 14. Welcome, Kate. Hello, Cheryl. It's great to be here. I I really want to welcome you. And um, maybe people will need a little explanation of why I felt so strongly that your work belongs on this show. So I'll just say personally that preparing for this show was especially emotional because of all the grief events in my own life as a lesbian that relate to uh, um, civil matters, Uh, you know, uh, dating back to around when you were founded, I think, when Harvey Milk and, and Moscone were killed and um, 
you know, Anita Bryant. I mean, just numerous, numerous events uh, up to and including Prop 8. And then, of course, the transformations that have come uh, in the time that I've been out since 1971 are also very remarkable. So thank you for coming on a grief show. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, it's, I thought the same thing. I mean, when you asked about it, I, I for, you know, my first reaction was, well, what do these two things have to do with each other? And, and I think you encapsulated it really well. And I also think, you know, we're in a moment where LGBTQ people are really under uh, almost a daily assault. And it just feels like there was a moment where maybe you could, um, breathe a little freer and, and not feel like you're carrying such a weight uh, of oppression and stigma. And now it feels like that's being, uh, we're being crushed down again. So I, I think, I think people are feeling some grief uh, over the moment that we're in. And so it feels like it's a perfect conversation to have. Absolutely. And as I mentioned to you, I just returned from uh, a tour with my choir, the Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir and the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus, which has been alive as long as your organization, um, almost exactly within the year. Uh, and we went to the South to sing for for people who are um, in some ways legally on the front lines in terms of we went to North Carolina where the, um, the bathroom bill is, you know, hot topic for everybody there and just uh, in Mississippi where there's a lot of litigation going on too and I would say they're they're in uh, uh, grief and also resolve yes 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 I I think I, I, that's something I'm picking up as I travel around the country um, I just came back from um, from a trip to uh, Pennsylvania Allentown Pennsylvania which is actually pretty rural, even though it's uh, it's only about an hour from Philadelphia. The feeling there is just much different. I was in Utah, my home state, and and I do feel like there there is an equal mix of both um, uh, terror uh, at what might happen, fear, particularly for the most vulnerable communities, but particularly for those of us who have any sort of relative privilege, whether it's geography or race or education, um, people standing up and saying, oh, no, we are not going to be pulled back into the dark ages, and we're not going to allow you to do that for any community. And that's been a very uh, empowering and inspiring thing to see. Absolutely. And I want to talk more about... um, you know, specifically what NCLR is doing lately about all of that. But I want to start a little more personally because, um, you know, I I first got exposed to you in a slightly more personal way through Facebook. Um, and um, so I would see, what's that? Uh, yeah, that's our best friend. That's, you know, we're, we're very close. Anybody who's on my Facebook page knows a lot about me. It's true. <laughs> And vice versa. <laughs> um, and, you know, I would I would uh, read things about you, for instance, going back to Utah to speak at a, a Mormon conference and just things that made me incredibly curious about your personal story and how you came to do what you do. Um, I, I just always felt that must fire your 
your passion in some way. And I wonder if you'd share some of that evolution with the listeners. Sure. Uh, I'd be honored to do that. I do think, you know, I love personal stories and I think everyone has a trajectory and, you know, mine is a little bit unusual. I did grow up Mormon, so I'm fond of saying a good girl gone bad, uh, or as my (laughs) wife would say, better. Uh, And um, it's really interesting because, you know, I had a pretty typical upbringing. My my parents were in... um, my, my dad was not active in the Mormon church, but my mom was very active. We went to church every Sunday. And, of course, I lived in a neighborhood that was probably 90% uh, Mormon. But I had an eighth-grade current events teacher, Lynn Miller, who um, exposed me to a whole new world. You know, Sojourner Truth, uh, obviously Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, uh, Frederick Douglass, and, you know, feminists of the time, uh, Cesar Chavez, uh, Chief Joseph, it just, there was a way in which I came to understand, whoa, there, this, this country has a history of long oppression of, uh, of people who white people do not deem to be worthy of full equality and inclusion in civil life. Uh, obviously, slavery being the most rank and shameful example of that. And it just woke me up. It, it, it spoke to me. It made me see that people could do something beyond themselves for uh, larger communities. And kind of from that point on, I think I was uh, pretty much on a trajectory where I decided I wanted to go to law school. I ended up working for the ACLU in Utah and then got a job as legal director here at National Center for Lesbian Rights and became executive director now 21 years ago. And and the best thing about that whole story is that the most important person in my life, my mom, when I came out to her, you know, hands sweating and tears streaming down my face, really worried that she was going to, if not reject me, at least say, uh, you know, well, honey, I'm, I'm really disappointed. I love you, but I'm really disappointed. She actually took my hand and said, honey, honey, the most important thing to me is that you're happy. And that mm. just launched me. And so I... Um, you know, I feel so blessed to be able to do work that feels consequential to me uh, and to do uh, work that feels like it's, um, it, it's, it just speaks to me and, and makes my heart sing. That is a very, uh, I don't know what year that was when you came out, but I came 80, out in... It would have been 82. It would have been 82. I was 22 at the time. I'm 57 now. So I think we may reflect the history somewhat, because when I came yep. out, it was 1971, and my mother, who who loved me, and they caught up, uh, my father did pretty well right away. Uh, he went into grief, but he didn't share it with me. <laughs> but my mother cried for two weeks. Um, oh, I was wow. the daughter. I was the daughter of a minister, so um, oh, it was oh. uh, such an such a a difficult thing but like you I my father had been a civil rights worker so I had been exposed to civil rights and eventually don't you put two and two together like if these people yeah. deserve rights everybody does you know including yeah. me <laughs> you know yeah, so right, um, right. It, it kind of uh, one thing leads to another there doesn't it well and it, it did make me realize that I mean I definitely think that you know, as as white LGBT people, I feel like we have a special responsibility, particularly those of us who 
have passing privilege who aren't immediately seen. I'm, I mean, I'm relatively gender conforming, um, although, you know, I've been told I walk like a linebacker, so <laughs> there is that. <laughs> uh, but I, I really think there's a responsibility for, for people who have a privilege they don't deserve. And for, for those of us who can pass as, as, as heterosexual, just whether we want to or not, just walking down the street, not being targeted based on people immediately being able to tell that we're LGBTQ, most people of color don't have that privilege. And I think it's really incumbent on those of us who have any sort of passing privilege or any privilege at all for that matter to really deploy that privilege for folks who, uh, who still have to labor under a very, very oppressive um, you know, white supremacist and homophobic culture. And, and I feel like, you know, growing up in Utah, which is overwhelmingly white uh, and, you know, in a very sort of middle-class uh, upbringing that, um, you know, I still learned those lessons. And I really do feel like they came from my mom who uh, abhorred the idea that anybody would be mistreated based on who they were or how they appeared. And uh, she walked that talk. She really did, despite her faith in a church that condemned um, LGBTQ people uh, she really had a deep, deep belief that uh, that people are all children of God, and we should all be treated with the respect that a child of God uh, should have. It's time for our first break, and that's it. Uh, let's let's say thank you to your mom and other mothers who who didn't didn't tow the party line, including my own, very, very quickly caught up with that. So we'll come back and talk more about that. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Please be in touch with me. I want to know what you think of the show and uh, what you'd like to hear other shows about, uh, what, what interests you in the area of grief. And to find Kate Kendall and her organization, you can go to NCL rights.org nclrights.org be back soon your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness relationship issues anxious parenting challenges no more learn how to live your best life tune into straight talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Mm 
You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Kate Kendall, head of the National Center for Lesbian Rights. And um, Kate, before the break, I think we were kind of talking about the relatively um, supportive um, circumstances that you and I had um, for living our lives as lesbians. Um, including, you know, for me, um, I had my first kid in 1980 and before I got pregnant, I thought, okay, uh, if I do this, I can't ever move. Um, (laughs) I think that may be less true now, but, but I really felt as if there was nowhere else I could live proudly. Uh, you know, I would have to live more fearfully and I didn't want to do that. Uh, so the the personal impact on what uh, on individuals of what we're talking about of not having rights and not having protection um, are deep, even for people who are relatively privileged. And then, of course, um, multiply that for people who are people of color or I think transgendered people right now are suffering particular abuse and. Um, so that uh, I, I agree with you, we have we have to be uh, showing up. Yeah, I mean, I think it. I, f- I feel like the the greatest toll that that systematic oppression and stigma takes on someone is it really telescopes your life. You believe less things are open to you. Uh, you believe your options are few. Maybe you can't. You don't feel like you can move if you wanted to move because you need to be able to protect relationships that could be challenged. Um, you know, you're not sure if you have a job, you're not sure you'll be able to get another job. It's, um, I mean, it is just, it's so, it's, it's so, uh, uh, it's such an attack on the, the sort of vitality of the human spirit to live like that. And, 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 you know, I feel lucky that I, I have been fortunate to not experience that much of that. Family rejection is the number one, uh, factor in self-harm for LGBT people as they grow up. Family acceptance uh, almost guarantees that uh, an LGBTQ person will grow up safe and secure and being able to be fully who they are. And we want to have that for everyone, regardless of race, geography, circumstance, ability. Um, and, you know, we don't have that uh, in this country. We, we've never really had it. And now it's even more, seems more, even more out of reach under the current administration. Uh, well, and also I was I was thinking as I was getting ready for this, you know, uh, many people say uh, it's it's changing hearts and minds. Who cares about the law? That kind of viewpoint. But if I look at, uh, for instance, um, interracial marriage, the law led to a change in society, not immediately, but over time, and. It it is a message to people when a group does not have rights. It's a message that it's okay to uh, yeah. abuse oh. and condemn them. Right. 
Well, it's, I mean, it's why we fought so hard. I mean, NCLR was lead counsel on the California marriage case. We were one of the organizations taking uh, the marriage fight all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and helped win uh, marriage nationwide. We were involved in the Tenth Circuit case in Utah, uh, obviously my home state, suing my home state. And, and it wasn't because necessarily um, we, you know, I, I think everyone should marry uh, who's in a relationship, uh, far from it. But it was, and, it, and the same thing now. We've just sued the Trump administration a couple of months ago over this proposed ban of uh, transgender service members being able to serve in the military. Now, I'm never going to serve in the military. Uh, even when I was younger, I, it's probably not so much a choice that I would have made. And there are many people who will never serve in the military or never marry. But to categorically exclude uh, a class of people from uh, being a part of a an institution in this culture that has such resonance and significance and importance stigmatizes that class of people far beyond whether you can marry or not or far beyond whether you serve in the military. It, it marks you with a badge of inferiority that says you really are not free to participate in civic life the way everyone else is. So we absolutely must eliminate barriers, structural barriers and government barriers and legal barriers to the full participation of anyone in society, but particularly in this case, LGBTQ people. And, uh, and then, you, then you can work on hearts and minds. These two things are related and they are, there's a symbiotic relationship, but, uh, but yeah, we got, we go, we challenge laws, uh, you know, often maybe far before we think the public will be with us because the public takes their cue from what the government says about where people should be able to participate or whether people are going to be respected under the constitution. And then the uh, at the other end, for for instance, I have I have three children, um, and uh, the the rights that I have directly reflected on their on their lives. They're all grown now, but mm-hmm. um, their safety and security in terms of being family members with the people I actually wa- lost one of my children because I didn't have legal rights for seven years so it's a very personal thing on that level too that um that we're going to have children we have children and they are also impacted by rights or no rights very 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 directly they absolutely are, and, and, a, and a perfect illustration of that in my life right now is that my my oldest daughter is um is 35, lives in Utah where she grew up, uh, a part of Utah that is very conservative, very Mormon, and she and her wife, uh, her wife has a nine-year-old from her previous relationship, and then they together uh, uh, have our six-month-old grandson, and they live in Spanish Fork, Utah, and yet they, their neighbors are fine, the school that, uh, that the daughter goes to is fine, uh, the nine-year-old it's it's really a changed atmosphere, and they're able to live their lives with a degree of openness and authenticity and without a backlash. And that just goes to show how how far we've come. and my and both my daughter and her part her wife are the legally recognized parents of my grandson. They were able to do a second parent adoption, which wasn't available when I was raising Emily in Utah. So, you know, you really have to, as, as difficult as this moment might be for a whole host of reasons, it's really important to take the long view and look at, at the trajectory of movements. And we really do lurch our way towards the right place 
um, even though at this moment it feels very imperiled, uh, our progress feels very at risk. That's interesting because I do find uh, myself reviewing history on purpose, even though mm-hmm. parts of it are so painful. Because, of course, the reason my mom cried for two weeks probably had something to do with the fact that she wasn't that comfortable with lesbian lesbianism. But that is not what she said at all. She said, literally, you'll never marry. I'll never be yep. at your wedding. You'll never have children. Yep. Um, I won't have grandchildren. Absolutely. I won't have grandchildren. I mean, that was what she sobbed about. That's what she... Um, collapsed about um the other was certainly there somehow but it wasn't what was gripping her at that time and so i think that uh that's really important that that's possible but a minor question that i heard a i heard a a story on the radio about um uh a same-sex married couple and they were they had a child together and they had to wait until after the birth to do a second parent adoption, even though they were married. And to my understanding, a heterosexual couple, the partner's automatically the parent. And it concerned me because since I'm in the grief and you know death business, I'm thinking, what if something happens to the birth mom in the process of birth? Um, so it kind of took me by surprise um, is that yeah. something that's that's um, that you're having to fight to change? It, it will change. I mean, we, uh, my daughter and her wife, were married when they gave birth to uh, to our grandson. When my daughter gave birth to our grandson, but we still, nevertheless, advised that they did do a second parent adoption because, you know, when you when you make huge progress and you make uh, huge change, and the and the and the and the nation and the laws finally recognize that there's been this huge oversight in protecting people. In this case, same-sex couples when it comes to marriage, there's a period of uncertainty, and not every state might respect the relationship in the same way. Not every nation might respect the fact that this is a married couple because they're a same-sex couple. So we do, even though this is this is discrimination. This is this is this is something that that heterosexual married couples do not have to do because there is a marital presumption that any child born to a married heterosexual couple, the father, the the husband is automatically presumed to be the father. But because biologically two women on their own can't uh, have a child. There, that presumption is still, some states apply the presumption the same, and we believe they should, but some states don't and have challenged it. So just to be 100% cautious, we advise same-sex couples to still do a second parent adoption, even if they're married at the time of the child's birth. Some years down the road, and I don't think it's going to be very long, we won't have to do this anymore when mm-hmm. the law catches up with this, this, this new reality. But that is the case for right now. I, I agree it's, it's wrong for all sorts of reasons. But, but as lawyers, we still advise uh, couples to do this just to assure that in every setting, their relationship and their parental recognition with their child will be respected. The other thing that's shocked a lot of uh, heterosexual friends of mine is how expensive that is. Um, my youngest child, my wife and I co-adopted, 
and um, they our attorney recommended we change our names to be the same name. That was, I think I remember, and it was quite a while ago now. She's grown. Uh, I think it was $1,200 to do that. There was um, paying the attorney, you know. <laughs> there, there were a lot that we had to uh, put... Uh, a notice in the paper there were just so that people could object if they wanted to you know there were all kinds of um requirements of that that of course wouldn't have been present if marriage at that time we couldn't even be married uh, but uh yep it, it adds a lot of wrinkles and i hear what yeah, you're saying it it's Look, prudent it, to and do it does add, and it does add expenses that couples and individuals should not have to pay and i know a lot of uh uh, same-sex married couples who don't have the resources to pay an attorney to do a second parent adoption. The good news is, if, for many people, it is something you can do on your own, uh, you know, with the right kind of documents, and, and we'd be happy to walk people through, you know, how they could do that uh, in certain jurisdictions. And then there are also attorneys who might be willing to do it pro bono or do it for a reduced fee because recognizing mm. that, you know, this is, first of all, it's, it's pretty pro forma, uh, but it is something we shouldn't have to do. And yet, you know, look, who, whoever is the target of discrimination um, under the law not only bears the burden of discrimination, but bears the actual literal cost of trying to rectify that discrimination. Absolutely. And that's where we are right now. Absolutely. And uh, that sort of leads leads me naturally to something I really want to talk with you about because I noticed uh, just, you know, looking, taking a deep dive into National Center for Lesbian Rights website and and um, I guess particularly the video of your 40th anniversary, which is fabulous. Um, uh, there's, you know, that word that that is around that I that I like the feeling of intersectionality uh, was very evident on your website. And I was, uh, I was interested to kind of hear how the organization, because, you know, you could just be saying, well, our gear is lesbian rights. You know, <laughs> we don't go outside mm -hmm. of that. Um, and that, and that's something that's being faced by, for instance, I work at the women's cancer resource center, uh, and and the definition of woman and and you know that there's an expanding uh, it's a women's organization that's serving more people who don't define as women as time goes on. So I I really wanted to hear your uh, organizational thinking about that. How did you come to that expansion and um, what is you you know what kinds of things are you intersecting with in that regard? Yeah, I love this question because I do think, you know, I think this is the future of, of really every movement, uh, and particularly uh, the LGBTQ movement. When NCLR was founded as the Lesbian Rights Project in 1977, it was at a time when the organizations, there were only a couple of them that existed at the time, were not focused on issues that were primarily being faced by lesbians. This was losing custody of our kids and losing our jobs. The organizations at that time were focused on, believe it or not, sodomy reform, ending laws that criminalize same-sex sexual intimacy, and the military. So, so some mm. things just, you know, continue for a long just time. Just won't stop. <laughs> but, and those issues, you know, while they affected lesbians a little bit, it was much more, um, that the, the, was in a much smaller numbers and a much smaller percentage. And so Donna Hitchens, now a retired Superior Court judge, 
graduated from Berkeley Law, took a $5,000 grant from the Berkeley Women's Law Foundation and founded the Lesbian Rights Project and began doing custody and employment work on behalf of lesbians. But of course, right off the bat, men were losing custody of their kids based on their sexual orientation. Uh, Men were losing their jobs based on their sexual orientation. So we began right away, uh, uh, very shortly, representing gay men. Uh, That's only continued, obviously, by sexual individuals, uh, also challenged for custody of their kids, losing jobs, uh, rejected from their communities. And then, of course, uh, transgender work, which we believe, I mean, I believe misogyny is the core cancer uh, that infects and creates homophobia. Women aren't being the right kind of women if they're relating to other women romantically um, and sexually, and men aren't being the right kind of men if they're choosing men as partners rather than other women. That's mm. misogyny. And, and if we can tackle that so that gender and gender presentation does not target someone for mistreatment or for stigma, gay men and lesbians are going to be so much better off. So we believe all these issues are connected. That's, that's one issue around transgender issues. And then for the broader brush, the criminal justice work we do, the youth in out-of-home care and juvenile justice and foster care, the race work we do, the immigration work that we do, partly this is because LGBT people are literally everywhere. This is, this is not just a slogan. It's actually true. We are in every demographic, in every race group, in every uh, social strata. We're in every... We're in rural counties, we're in uh, populated urban centers. And so all these issues, there's a through line, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's over-policing, whether it's marriage, whether it's how kids are treated in schools, you are going to find a cohort of LGBTQ people that are affected by that issue. So we believe that these issues are LGBTQ issues. And then the final thing is that we really ask ourselves the question, what kind of country do we want to live in? And we want to live in a country where everyone feels protected and secure under the law. They are not stigmatized or mistreated or subject to abuse or violence based on who they are or how they appear or who they love. And sometimes that'll be LGBTQ people and sometimes it will be people who don't identify as LGBTQ, but, but we're all going to be better off if we live in that kind of, uh, of a society. And I know from my own uh well, even including this tour how, that I just went on, how um, one of my friends used to say, if we're all going to be in it together, it's going to be really messy. <laughs> A person of color, I was, my first wife. And, and it's true. It's very messy, but it's also vibrant and beautiful and uh, well, and, life. And I feel like alive. now, under... Under this current regime, it's the only way we're going to survive. They'll pick us off one by one if they can. I mean, the reason that Trump wants to reinstitute a ban on transgender service members but didn't go after lesbian and gay individuals and call for Congress to to reinstitute a ban on serving uh, uh, service in the armed services by lesbians and gay men and bisexuals is because... They're trying to just pick us off. They're like, well, if we just attack the transgender folks, maybe the lesbian and gay bisexual folks will be fine with that and we'll be able to pick off these groups and separate them from each other. And, you know, we're standing up strong and putting a line in the sand and saying, oh, no, you don't. No, yeah. Brothers and sisters. Absolutely. 
And, you know, it has sort of a quality on a bad day. I'm sort of feeling like a, uh, uh, I guess, a lobster in the water, you know, where Uh you slowly heat it up. Um, (laughs) So, Or is it a frog? I can't remember which animal. I think think either one probably works the same way. They they end up up not doing well. Yeah. Yes. Um, So... This this leads me to, you know, uh, we'll, we'll only just barely get started and then take our break. But um, for myself, uh, when the election happened, I kind of figured out, okay, what am I going to need to survive? Um, <laughs> and, and I thought, okay, I'm going to have to feel bad sometimes. I'm going to have to get uh, access to solace in some way or another, inspiration and action. And what you do is is big in the action. Uh, you know, so many fights you're fighting. And I'd really like to talk, we can start a bit now and then come back to it, about how you keep yourself um, fluid in your feelings and, and comforted and, um, and inspired because uh, it can be very exhausting to do the kind of work that you do. It is, and look, there are moments where I, I want to be clear. I feel like you know, curling up in the fetal position uh, as well. But you know, it, there's no uh, there's no magic to it. I feel like I probably have the same sources of support that many other people do in in very demanding and difficult jobs. You know, an amazing family, uh, incredible kids, uh, a great network of friends. You know, some things that I enjoy doing. You know, a long bike ride. Uh, you know, some travel, uh, just being able to get away a little bit, sit out on my back deck with a glass of wine. I mean, it's it's really just understanding. I feel like, you know, at 57, I have a pretty good sense of what I need to be able to unwind and calm down. And I need that because i got to get up the next day and, and fight again. And so whatever people need, do it, and then let's get up the next day and fight again. That's what this moment requires. Yeah. Now we're now we're moving into the self care portion of the grief uh, story, <laughs> which of course I I find just so radically just important. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, we're just all gonna melt down. I think <laughs> it's time for our break. We'll we'll uh, start there when we get back. And listeners, you can you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief Host page, and you can find Kate Kendall and her organization, Nas- National Center for Lesbian Rights, at nclrights.org. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
we're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Kate Kendall, head of the National Center for Lesbian Rights. And Kate, before the for the for the break, the break, break, we, we were talking about how you stay inspired, and I have my own things I have to do, including, uh, you know, singing. <laughs> for me, I I just uh, wow, I keep great. thinking I'm too busy to to really be, you know, in this choir I'm in, and then we go on a tour. That's you know. <laughs> A lot, but I I just need it, um, and I and I find sometimes people drop that it's not what they do to address their uh, these terribly painful um, dilemmas we're in is to drop themselves, and then it's not sustainable. Uh, so I appreciate you uh, kind of naming the things you do uh, as permission to everybody to take care of ourselves. Yeah, I, I, I really feel strongly about that. I, um, you know, I also think as, you know, I, I mean, we're, I'm at an age where, you know, I've lost both my parents now. And so I've gone through that whole caregiver period of time, which, and that's where it really taught me. And I had, you know, doctors and other caregivers say, look, the caregiver needs to take care of themselves too, so they can be fully available to do the caregiving. And in some ways, you know, we're caregiving our nation right now. Our, our nation is on life support and democratic institutions and our democracy, I feel like in many ways is hanging by a thread. And we're, we, this, this nation needs, a, uh, you know, about 200 million caregivers to show up and really help uh, us through this hard patch. But the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you take care of yourself as well and then, you know, nurture our country uh, back to health, which I definitely believe we can and must do. Hmm. I I love that because um of course that's part of why I I felt so keen on having you come on the show that um we're in a grief period here. Um a loss period that we're trying to transform through. Uh and I can mm-hmm. see that people are start starting to find their comforts and their expressions in that. But there's also that fourth part I mentioned, the action part, which I have a sense that you know a ton about, <laughs> you know, and that you might be able to offer people ways to engage because I think d- deciding how to engage is very difficult uh, because there's so many different possibilities right now. And and I figure we, we hear a bunch of possibilities and something will call us. Um, so 
what do you suggest people do to contribute to this caregiving the nation that you just mentioned? I do think the the sheer onslaught of um, fury coming from this administration and the you know the almost weekly, sometimes daily attacks on uh, vulnerable communities can really leave you paralyzed. And I've definitely had moments where I feel like I'm frozen in my tracks thinking, oh, my God, which way do we turn now? And, and so I, I, I absolutely understand that. And I think it's also very intentional. I think it is meant to fatigue people believing they can actually do anything. I mean, learned helplessness is a real thing. And if you actually think nothing you can do will make a difference, that's exactly what, uh, what I think uh, this administration is hoping for. So w- w- what I tell people to do, and, and there are some specific things, but let me just begin generally. You can't do everything about everything, but I, I think the mantra should be, I'm going to do what I can about what I can. So pick one or two things that really matter to you. The environment, uh, deportations, the treatment of immigrants, over-policing in communities, the, uh, the ramping up of the criminal justice system where more and more people will be imprisoned and we were heading the other direction, uh, and, and, and figure out what organizations are doing work in that space. Do you have time to volunteer? Uh, can you use your platform, your social media platform, just sitting around your kitchen table, Thanksgiving is coming up? You know, why not have? I mean, this is where I would encourage, you know, the importance of actually making a Thanksgiving dinner uncomfortable by saying, look, I'm really concerned about X and this is what I've been doing. You know, can, can I get some help for this? And there might be differences. I mean, there's always, you know, the family Thanksgiving table can always be a fraught concern. If you don't feel like doing it there, then invite 12 of your friends over to sit around your kitchen table and, and write letters to elected officials on issues about things you care about. So pick one or two things. Decide four or five things that you're going to do to respond. Donating to the organizations doing work, I would definitely suggest as an executive director that, that you know, funds, because, the, because doing good work in this country is supported by the funds of good people and not by the government, by and large, nonprofits like mine depend on individuals to provide financial support. So provide financial support, even if it's 20 bucks. And then figure out what are some other things you can use. Use your voice, use your social media voice, use your volunteer time. And I'll tell you what, you spend six months doing that, even just once a week. You think of one thing you can do once a week, not every day even, just once a week. At the end of six months, I mean, if 200 million people did that, we'd save our country. There's also, uh, you know, I'm thinking about, this tour. So the way that came about is that uh, the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus was hitting their 40th anniversary. They were going to go somewhere exotic to celebrate that on tour. And when the election happened, they immediately, uh, within a couple of days, um, just had this this feeling they couldn't do that. And they they inaugurated the Southern tour. And then within a week, uh, there was talk of us going along, which which is radically, uh, I don't know, divinely inspired, I guess. It's not a natural thing that would happen. But someone knew someone, I guess. Well, that tour gave everyone who went on it a tremendous amount. 
But we did it because we were hurting. Yep. We yep. all wanted yep. to go okay. because we we needed some way to make a difference, right? So I want to yep. put a word in that if you feel called to do something and you then do it, it gives back. I, I mean, I'm still completely altered by that experience. Uh, I, yep. I, I could, I, agree. I probably, I probably will spend many shows talking about it when I can talk about it. <laughs> I can't do that too well yet. But um, so that's part of what uh, you're talking about too, is finding things that, that inspire you to spend that time and energy, uh, keeping our eyes open maybe. Yeah. And I do, I mean, look, it's the, the, the sense of, um, of unease about, uh, about where we are uh, in this country can be debilitating and acting is the, the perfect uh, uh, antidote to, uh, to that unease. So I, I feel like that's how you heal both yourself uh, and the country. After Prop 8, uh, after we lost, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I can't remember another time I have felt quite so personally depleted by, by a bad moment, except maybe the election. <laughs> but um, that one felt very, very personal because it was the same election where Barack Obama was elected. So putting those two things together was very hard. So as a person who works with grief, uh, I also want to say having your feelings about those things is vital. Uh, Like I didn't just, you know, pop up the next day and take a bunch of action. Um, I think I, uh, (laughs) I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, I mean, I, yeah, the Prop 8 thing always just yeah, sets me because it's, uh, I mean, that was a traumatizing experience. It was a brutalizing experience. You know, we just won marriage in California. NCLR was at the forefront of that. Um, you know, we fought like heck to defeat Prop 8. I ended up working out of the campaign office for the last um, uh, eight weeks of the campaign. I didn't even come into my own office. I didn't even do NCLR's work. It was all work to defeat Prop 8. And, um, and when it passed, uh, it was, it was akin to, uh, the grief I felt when I lost, uh, my parents and my brother, that sort of familiar, like, oh, wait a minute, I know what this feeling is. And it lingered for at least probably three months. I think it was a good three months before I felt like I came out of it. And while I'll never say that the passage of Prop 8 was a good thing because it was, uh, I think it hurt a lot of people, and it definitely traumatized me. The fact is, <laughs> it galvanized this nation. And I now believe, looking back, and it is, you know, the vantage of history really does help one to put in context tough experiences. The passage of Prop 8 accelerated our winning marriage a mere seven years later because it woke the country up and hundreds of thousands of people the next day protested in cities all over the country, the passage of this measure in California, and that awakening ushered in marriage equality in 2015. And, you know, you look at that lesson, you look at what happened during uh, the HIV crisis in the 80s where the government not only did nothing about 
hundreds and then thousands of gay men dying. But Larry Speaks, the press secretary of Reagan at the time, laughed when asked the question, what is the government going to do about these gay men who are dying? Uh, you look at lynching in the 1950s, which was rampant in the South, and nobody in Congress would even carry a bill to outlaw lynching. It's important to, to just steady ourselves by understanding that our, our nation's been here before, and even, even darker moments, and, and we found our way out. And that, those lessons of history can give us hope, but the only way those things changed is when people got galvanized and engaged. They won't change on their own. They will, yes. We're the ones we're waiting for. So we, we need to push those levers. And then from my lens, of course, that is a, a truism about trauma and grief, that some people um, get, get lost in trauma, for sure. But much more people find a way to uh, create something out of it. It doesn't make the trauma good, but uh, most of us don't stay there. We also make something profound, and that's what you're talking about as well, that, um, you know, that along the tour, people were quoting the beautiful quote, they tried to bury us and they didn't know we were seeds. Um, which yep. I which, yep. which I love. Oh, I love that. That's really great. Yeah, that's fabulous. <laughs> that's that actually was coined by a gay poet. Uh, it gets attributed to the Mexican Revolution, but it was actually a gay poet that they quoted. So, uh, you know, that's that's what we're after. We're after being seeds, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. And actually, I would say fast-growing seeds. <laughs> you know, so, uh, as fast maybe, as possible. <laughs> maybe maybe not chemically altered, but uh, but yeah, we. This is. I do think. I do think what's happening here are the seeds of of real and lasting change, and and maybe even you know I don't want to be hyper hyperbolic here, but maybe even a little bit of a revolution, uh, and that that's what gives me hope, and I see that everywhere I go, and and we can't lose faith that. Uh, that, that we can actually make that revolution happen if we're engaged and involved. I want to put in a plug here for supporting your organization because, of course, I've been aware of your work. Well, I knew Donna Hutchins and, and Roberta Actenberg way back when, um, when I was very young, <laughs> and um, just incredible work that you do. So I, I hope you're on people's lists of places they can support really profound work for uh, equality and rights. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And people can, you know, go to the website, nclrights.org, you know, check out our work. If it's, if it's work that speaks to you, um, you know, I promise we will put your money to very good use. We consider, I don't care whether the gift is a $5 gift or a $500,000 gift. We, Fantastic. Um, we consider so we ourselves to be very important stewards of that support. Absolutely, you are. And I thank you for being here. We have to we have to bow out now for now, but I hope you'll keep in touch. And next Absolutely, week, Sarah, my pleasure. Mine too. Next week, Allison Gilbert, author of Past and Present, will come back to Good Grief to talk about her latest project. She now serves as Executive Family and Memories Editor for Legacy Republic, the fastest growing memory preservation company in the world. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.